Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. That's available as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free, always free, to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. For more information about the books, more information about me, more information about everything that's good in this world, including interviews uh, with uh, thousands of literary agents, authors, all the best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. But by golly, we're on a tight timeline tonight, and I cannot waste another moment. I'm so excited. We are talking with Sarah Pennypacker, uh, author of the new book, uh, Pax Journey Home, a uh, sequel to the classic Pax. Sarah Pennypacker, how are you this evening? Hey, I am fine. How are you? I am been looking forward to this all month. Uh, I was a big fan of uh, PAX when it came out. Uh, and having written a sequel, I know that uh, it's no good to say that this sequel is even better than the first book, because then you say, well, what was wrong with the first book? I thought that was really good. Uh, and if I say it wasn't quite as good as the first book, but still very good, that's not really a good compliment either. Oh. Uh, fortunately, this these two feel like, um, one in the not one in the same, but it's a continuation of the story. It's for those who have already read PAX, I figure they're, as we speak, uh, pre-ordering their copy of PAX A Journey Home, or if they're listening to us after Tuesday when the book comes out, uh, okay. Tuesday, September 7th, yes, then you can uh, pick up both books that have the entire journey ahead of them. Uh, so either way, they're, they're in good shape. Uh, so esteemed audience knows that I never summarize anybody else's book. Why would I make you sit through that? Uh, and I never summarize anybody else's biography when you're right here. Uh, so if you would, give esteemed audience uh, an overview of your background, and we'll get going from there. Sure. Um, I, I've been writing for, uh, it's over 26 years. I'm not quite sure exactly. And I have 26 books, so, which is really odd to me because no book takes a year. They all take more, it seems, or uh, a couple of them did take uh, less time. But it's just odd to me that each year we're keeping up. Anyway, I hope that goes on for the rest of my life. Hope that's a lot more books, a lot more years. Um, I, I tend to write all over the place. I don't know how you are, and that's what I'd really love to do tonight is talk about writing and how it is for, for you and how different it is for everyone. But I'll tell you how it is for me. I never, ever am in control in such, the way that I, I mean, I've never said, oh, I think I'll write a novel or I think I'll write a chapter book or a picture book. Not ever. I, I write whatever I can't stop thinking about and I can't not plot out. It's just, I don't have control. The idea comes and I just have to follow it. So I have no control over this. Um, this novel, this, the, the new one and, and the other one, I don't want to call it the old one, the original, the first one, um, Stuff came to me and I just had to follow it. So I don't lead, I've, I follow. Um, anyway, I had to follow and I, I follow most often in a, a way that ends up being a mid-grade novel or a chapter book for kids just a little bit younger than that mid-grade audience. That is my favorite. And I'm always so glad when the idea that has grabbed me is going to go to that audience. I absolutely love it when that happens. Does that happen for you? Do you choose? Do you say, I think I'd like to write a novel and you do it? Um, not exactly. I usually have some idea of what would be the best novel for me to write now. And sometimes my 
um, my whatever my muse accommodates, and that's what comes forward. And other times, it's that's the absolute least novel, least that that's the worst novel you could write at this moment. And my muse says, "Nope, this is the one we're doing, and I'm not doing anything else until you do it." And I say, "Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> I hope it works out then because we're doing this thing." <laughs> yeah, I've had some where people have just said to me, "That is just not meant to be a children's book. You're out of your mind." And it's like. I can't stop it. Uh, I have a book called Sparrow Girl, for instance, which is about what happened in China in, uh, now I've already forgotten, 1948, I think. Um, and no, 58. Anyway, Mao Zedong ordered all the sparrows killed and he used children to do it. And I couldn't stop thinking about that and what it would be like to be a child who uh, was ordered to kill sparrows in the way that, that uh, they, they all were. It was a national program. Um, anyway, a lot of people, including people in the business, said, uh, this is not just, this is not a children's book. End up being a beautiful picture book, well-received picture book. So you never know, but I know now, I know that I have to follow whatever it is. I have to follow it. Go do that book. Has there ever been an idea you've had where you said, oh, this is the idea I absolutely have to write, and I would love to write it for children, but I can't figure out a way to make it kid-friendly, so I guess I'll have to make it a little bit more adult, or? Um, well, I do have one book that I started off thinking it was, a, uh, probably thought it was going to be a YA, and it did end up being an adult novel, and uh, my name, my a different name is on it, I'll just say. I, I have two legitimate names. I was married. Penny Packer, not married anymore, so it's not Penny Packer. Um, so it's not under that name. But yeah, that did happen because more and more stuff happened in the book. And again, I didn't have control over that. So luckily, there, there were adults who would read a book too. Mostly kids are the best audience. But, you know, once in a while, you have to write for adults, I guess. Once, once it, it, it seems almost unavoidable, unfortunately. You got to lower your standards and write for that audience, you know, the, the adults. They are a worse audience, by the way, having written a book now for adults. Um, by far, children are way better readers in terms of, you know, caring about the characters and really getting into it and appreciating a book and appreciating all the things you put in it. Um, and I, I guess it's because it's new. I think it's because books mean more to kids. They're just, I think they're a better audience. I, uh, I mostly 100% agree, except for occasionally when, uh, when I want to say something that I know I can't, I can't, I can't get away with for a, a, a kid audience. And then it's, it's gotta be a Robert Kent book, but right. I have never met an adult reader that's as enthusiastic or as appreciative as a child reader. No, not yet. Something I had uh, read that, that, that you said is you uh, have, you, you see your, your job as a writer for children having two main things. Uh, one, to tell readers that you are welcome in the world of humans just as you are. Uh, and two, that there's, there's always hope and change. Uh, and so I wanted to get a sense, how, how do you go about that? How do you make a book, make a, or a child reader feel welcome to the world of humans? Uh, it's a really good question. It's, it's not something that I'm working on in the first drafts when I'm trying to catch things, I'm trying to get it down. It's more something that I, I want to be aware of as I'm revising. Um, that's, it's, it's really complicated because 
we have two other things that we do. And one is that we are supposed to record the world as it is. We're supposed to say, here's how the world works, right? And then we're also supposed to model how it should be. And those two things diverge a lot, especially it seems now. I mean, now that I can say I've been writing for 26 years, I have that span of time to tell you that there's a bigger divergence from how the world is and how it should be was a lot tighter 26 years ago. So that's hard. Um, the way that I end up making kids feel welcome, I think one of the tricks that I use, if it's, it's not a trick, it's just something I do, is from the very first chapter, I let you know that my main characters mess up. I let you know that they are weak in some area, that they hurt in some area, that they make mistakes. I want to say right up front, this is not a perfect person. I, sh I don't write about superheroes. Um, and therefore, don't you feel like you could be friendly with this person or that this person won't judge you because this person doesn't want to be judged either. So that's one way that I do it. Um, the other part of it is, is that you want to say to your audience, hey, the world is huge and full of really interesting paths and interesting people and quite a diversity. And you are welcome just as you are, but you are also welcome any way you want to be. You decide to be different, you decide to change your path, you're there too. Um, I love doing it by showing, I like to go and show, for instance, I might have, I don't know, a little boy in China 400 years ago, right? What I mainly, that might be a really interesting story, but the first thing I have to establish is that a little girl reading it today will say, oh, me too, I feel that way. So I might say in the beginning of that story um, that the character is just really, really afraid because his mother is going off to go buy spices or something. And he's really afraid she might not come home. Something that my today character can say, I don't care if it's a boy, I don't care if it's in China, I don't care if it's 400 years ago. I worry too, you know? That's something I worry about. So I guess that, that might be an answer. One uh, pitfall, and I haven't, uh, obviously, this, this does not apply to either of the, the Pax novels or, or anything else that, I, that I've read of yours, but just, um, I, I would think that a, pit, a pitfall of, a, of showing a character immediately with a weak or a shortcoming is how to avoid making that character, um, well, obviously, you want them to be less than admirable, but um, without you, you don't want you don't want the audience feeling contempt for them or dislike for them. So, how do you balance that to make sure that that's not a possibility? Um, usually, it's with humor, and and I have to say, because both Pax books start from the fox's point of view, that isn't quite true. That doesn't apply. It's Peter. I want you, the reader, to. Uh, relate to. So it's actually in chapter two, where each of the, the times uh, when we first meet Peter, it's always in chapter two, and he shows a weakness. Pax does not, because Pax's job, as a, in my story, is to show up the differences, show up some differences between uh, choices that could be made, and also some differences between animals and people. 
when I wrote as Pax, half the chapters are written as a fox, I decided to do it by giving, giving Pax sort of, a, a, sort of approaching the world as a human does, but without two things, without self-reflection and without neuroses. So Pax, just like Peter, he has um, memories, he has uh, goals, he has motives, he has emotion, he has ties, but he never once thinks back to, you know, how did I look doing that? How do I, how am I going to be received? Or am I good enough? That kind of thing. So I saved that for the humans. I already forgot your question. Oh, that's great. Certainly. Did I answer it? Look. I think he would have reason to feel just a little bit. He's literally a fish out of water. He's he's a domesticated fox who's now been returned to the wild and, and, and amongst bristle and and, and hunt and, and learning his way and great. Uh, wonderful characters. I, I reread that first book uh, this week. So excited. Um, in fact, uh, I've got so many questions about that. I figured the way to sell a sequel is everybody that read the first book just let them know, hey, there's a sequel, and then that's that's taken care of. And then everybody who hasn't read the first book, let's tell them how great it is, and then they'll they'll buy both. Um, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience, I promise not to summarize your book. If you give them uh, an overview of what they need to know about Pax and, and Pax a Journey Home, uh, and then I've got all kinds of questions for you about how you, you your technique and how you crafted them. Great. Okay, great. Um, so for quite a while before I wrote Pax, I was, uh, two things I had been trying really hard to work into the book. I was obsessed with two things. One of them was the incredible bonds that I know that children can form with animals, even wild animals. I was calling it a radical form of empathy because kids rightly and bravely don't see that boundary sometimes, the species boundary, as a reason to not give their all, to be really, really there for uh, a pet or even a wild animal. Just they don't think the way adults think, well, that's an animal, so I'm not going to be as loyal, I'm not going to love them as much, that kind of thing. Nope, kids have this uh, radical empathy. So I wanted to write about that. I also, though, wanted to write about the fact, the injustice that kids and animals don't get a say in war. They are never asked to, hey, should we have this war? But they pay such a high price for it. So anyway, I finally figured out how to do those two things by blending an animal story and a war story. And then once I got going in Pax, Pax is the story of a boy who had, after his mom has died and he's really needing something, he finds a kit fox alone in a den. The mom has been killed by a car. The other kits are, are, are dead. And so he takes it home and he gives it all the love that he has. He's missing from his mom. He raises that fox just as you would raise a kitten or a puppy. And a fox is a really wonderful choice. In fact, maybe if you want to ask me about that, we can talk about foxes and why they're such a great choice. But it, it was sort of like a cat and a dog combined. That's the kind of animal that it, it was. So we did that, then war came. And as when war comes, people are displaced. When people are displaced, they often have to get rid of their animals. So that's the setup for Pax. Here's this kit fox who wouldn't be alive if Peter hadn't found him. Peter would not be okay if he hadn't found this pet, this animal to raise and to 
to love and connect with. And now they have to be separated. The father has said, I'm going to war. You have to go live somewhere else. You cannot take your pet. That happens all the time. Pets and domestic animals um, are, are abandoned in war. So the story is really then becomes two stories. Pax is trying to figure his way in the wild while trying to get back to Peter. Peter realizes he has made an error. He did not do the manly right thing. And he's going to go back and try and find Pax. So it's, that's what Pax is, the story of them finding their way back to each other. And what happens when they do now that they're both so changed? Um, that's what, that's what all I think I would say about Pax. If you haven't read it, uh, I'll say one more thing is page six and seven are really hard, but get through that. Don't be worried because it's, the end of chapter one is really hard. It won't be that hard again in the book. And is that uh, is that um, Peter's uh, failing? Then is we know that he should be stopping his separation from Pax, and he he doesn't do it. And of course, he's going to spend the rest of the book making up for it. But is that the, the key defining flaw? Yeah, I, um, I guess it would be. He it's not something though that he had any choice in. He really didn't. We don't when our parents uh, when war comes. And, and an adult in charge says, we have to do this thing. You kind of have to do it. However, once you're alone, and once you have some agency, which he did, um, then you have some choices. And he made maybe some bad choices, but for the right reason. And I should go back and say, almost all of my other books, besides the Pax and Pax uh, sequel, are funny books. I'm just realizing this as we talk. And that's how I introduce the characters to you. Something funny happens where you can't, you're laughing, but you're going, oh my gosh, honey, why did you do that thing? I wish you hadn't, but I do that too. So um, I think that's more what I mean when I say I introduce failings. Like all the Clementine books, we always open up and see her messing up. And uh, the Wayland books, yeah, I would say, except for these two books there's a lot of humor in that opening introduction that makes you i don't know when we're laughing i think it's easier to to say i'm connected to you when we're when we're laughing why uh why is a fox the best choice for the animal in the story as opposed to a dog this question just came to me just apropos nothing <laughs> i'm really glad i'm really glad because i knew it would have by the time I, I was choosing the animal, I knew that the animal had to be released to the wild. So I didn't want it to be a dog or a cat or, or a, a typical pet that, that is definitely tamed, domesticated. I wanted it to have been a wild animal so that this could be a choice. Now I've got a lot of animals though to choose from. And the fox, I interviewed them. I actually sat them all down. I looked at what I could learn about all these wild animals and I interviewed them. And the fox far and away, because as you probably know, when an author chooses an animal as a stand-in character, it's usually for something you can't put a child in a situation. All these picture books about mice and little bunnies, uh, that's because we are saying we know kids that sometimes you feel overlooked 
and quiet. No one hears you and you don't have power. Um, so we, we represent you by an animal that has those qualities that we're talking about. So I decided I want, I want an animal that, most, that best represents my readership. And I'm already thinking these kids are nine to 13, maybe. That's a great readership for, for packs. So I interviewed the animals and here's why the fox won. First of all, it's really smart, like my readers. Foxes deserve the reputation for being clever. They are incredibly smart. They are so social, which I hadn't really known. They're social in, a, in an extraordinary way too. Not only do they have strong family bonds and strong friendships, but they experience those friendships outside of their species, just as kids do. Very few animals do that, but foxes are known to have relationships with um, many other species, including humans. They relate. They relate to bear cubs. They'll relate to dogs. There's, um, there's several actually new books out right now about people having relationships with foxes. Um, they're adaptable. That's a terrific thing. Um, a fox can, a foxes th thrive on six continents. And you could take a fox from a tundra in the Arctic and put it into a city and it would thrive. It would be all right. Foxes are in almost every climate, every situation, you know, from city to wild, wild woods. And they do just fine, just like kids. They're adaptable. Um, they have a sense of humor, like my readers. And they're agile, like my readers. Um, they're very playful, like my readers. So it was just the foxes was absolutely the, the best choice. Absolutely. What does a fox interview look like? I sit them down. I look at web. I look at websites and do some reading. I um, look at pictures of them and I watch videos of them. And then it was just so clear. And a, another thing that was quite wonderful was because the fox is described as. Uh, cat software running dog hardware. So I thought my, my readers are going to have experience with both puppies and kittens and dogs and cats. So they already have the experience of how Pax is going to relate and how he's going to move, how he's going to be as a, you know, as a cuddly pet sometimes, or uh, just how he's going to behave because we know cats and dogs. So that was another thing. It's not going to pick a rhinoceros where we're just not comfortable with the way it moves and how it you know, perceives the world. The fox was a great choice. Something I had heard you say about uh, Pac's uh, journey home uh, was that you were so excited to be a fox again. And I love that you put it that way. How do you get into the head of a fox? How do you write this anthropomorphic uh, animal that, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a fox because he's, he's got some vaguely, vague humanish qualities that we can relate to. Uh, but it's very much a fox. So how do you walk that line? How do you make those decisions about how to craft that character? Yeah, um, again, the, the, the thing that guided me was no self-reflection. Do not be neurotic. Do not worry about anything other than something going on right now. Like Pax could be really worried about uh, being harmed in nature, right? but he's not gonna worry about how he'll perform or how he'll be judged. That's all I took away. And 
I tried to show that we share a lot with them. We're looking for uh, comfort. We're looking for food. We're trying to adapt to a new environment, both Peter and Pax in the original book. They're out on their own, you know, with, with some pretty harsh uh, circumstances. Pax doesn't know how to hunt, for instance. Peter has a broken leg. These are hard things to be out in the wild with. So I wanted more than differences. I wanted to show here's how here's how we are. They both um, they both needed a mentor. They both got an older female mentor. Both Pax and Peter, as they start their journeys, run into an older female figure who tells them how the world is, who gives them some help in getting through. So I was mostly concerned with showing that even though we're different species, even though we move differently, we hunt differently, or we're, we have many differences, sure. We also have a lot of things that are in common, we have in common. You, um, you show that both uh, Peter and, and, and Pax have, um, I don't know what the right word is, you talk about the, the, the Buddhist uh, principle of uh, that we're all uh, one, uh, and literally, when the uh, when the animals get together, they can almost share telepathic psychic images from their their past with each other. And yeah. it seems like like E.T. and and, and Elliot, uh, Peter and Pax are kind of feeling each other's feelings at different times throughout the story. Yeah. Do you believe that that's uh, true in life, or is that uh, something that you want to say about the larger world metaphorically within the story? Where 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 does the author fall on that? So that's interesting that you picked those two things because those are the only two things that I couldn't run through my red fox expert. I had a red fox expert uh, who helped me get everything right about the behavior. But those two things, there's no way to prove that there is a telepathy, right? But I'm pretty sure that when two creatures are that in tune with each other when they're together, I don't think that just ends. And I also did learn from my red fox expert that foxes are able to understand the communication of not just the crows as I have in my book, but of all the creatures that live in their environment, all the ones that are communicating. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not talking, well, maybe I'm talking about crickets. I don't know. He shocked me with that. I said, are you sure I can get away with having them listen to the crows and understand what's going on? He said, oh yeah, in fact, foxes, do it with a whole lot of other animals. So the two by two, two but not two. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in my extremely long life, a lot longer than your life, um, that we, we are more one than not and that we are connected in ways that we often don't see or don't want to see. I will tell you that after I wrote Pax, I received a lot of a lot of mail, of course, and I can't tell you how many times I received the same story, the same anecdote. People would write and tell me, I had this experience with a fox in the wild. I'm walking along, walking on my path, and I look over and I see a fox. And I didn't think anything of it, and the fox isn't threatening me, isn't threatened by me. It's just kind of like, yeah, we're looking at each other. And then I take off down the path, Five minutes later, I turn around, there's a fox. He's loping along kind of the same rate. It's the same fox, right? 
And that would happen continually over their journey. And I myself have had that happen to me. So I know what they're talking about. And that makes me feel pretty sure that, yes, we are, we are more connected than we know. And foxes at least show you that because they're not afraid of you and because they're, they don't, aren't threatening to you. They just seem often to be kind of hanging with you. There's a brand new book called The Fox and I about a woman who spent a year having uh, exchanges with the fox every single day. The fox would show up at her house. She started reading a book to it and the fox would just listen for a while and then go. Um, I'm a strong believer in that, the Buddhist concept of two but not two, that we are all connected. And I actually am pretty fearful right now for the world because we're going out less. We are more and more isolated. This pandemic hasn't helped, but we are out. We're certainly out in nature less than we ever were. And I think we're, we're beginning to feel that we don't belong together, that we aren't connected to all of the all of the creatures that live on this earth do have connections and we're starting, I think, to at least not be out there as much and be aware of it as much. Well, uh, hopefully uh, that will be one of, of many things that will be restored at the moment we get enough uh, folks vaccinated and we really start to turn the corner on this thing. Uh, fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. Yeah, don't you feel it? I mean, you must. I just feel like I, I'm in contact with people, of course, but it's a different way. It's different from being in person. And it's, uh, it just makes you feel isolated. Of course, you know that. It does. I actually felt a little bit closer to nature because I've just been taking so many long walks. Uh, That's great. Activity you can do without getting, you know, six feet. Uh, closer to anyone. <laughs> so. True, but, you know, people are spending more and more time on screens. Nature more and more is becoming a video that you're watching. Um, I don't think people camp as much as they did 50 years ago. I, I'm not sure of that, but I, I think it's probably true. There's not out as much. Oh, well, but, <laughs> but you can always go out there and, and find them. It's... It's still open to us. Well, I think as, as many uh, years evolution now of, of, as people have of, of being social and, and, and being with each other, this is hopefully a blip on an otherwise continued uh, uh, journey toward having no boundaries, I imagine, once uh, everything is uh, neuro-linked, once, once Elon Musk gets that technology out and, and in everybody's brain, we're, we're all going to be sort of a hive mind. Yeah, and, and of course we are globalizing. So it, in a way, certainly more than, again, 50 years ago, we are more connected to people in very different walks of life, different places in the world. Um, we, we are now more one community. That's great, at least about people. So let's hope that we can get back to seeing us ourselves as an, as an animal that lives on the earth also, one of many. There uh, seems to be a theme in the novel. I couldn't quite figure out what it meant. And I, I you know, if I were writing a term paper, I, I'd be stumped as to how to, how to put this. Because obviously Peter uh, breaks his foot. 
Uh, and then he, um, there are multiple characters in the story who either are missing feet or have injured feet. What is it with feet? <laughs> what's, what's the unifying theme there? There, there actually is one. If it had been an arm, I would have made it an arm for all of them. I wanted to, uh, when I have a theme in, in a book, I want to reflect it in as many characters as possible. So you can see different iterations of that same thing. And I'll tell you why it's foot. I will tell you a story. I don't know how long you have, but um, the story is basically, okay. It's a story that reminds me that creation is a river. Okay, the story is this. One day, many years ago now, I was driving in my car, was listening to NPR and a story came on about, it was a collection of stories actually about people returning from war. And uh, this was the story of a woman whose son had come home and she was grateful that he was home. She was sorry that he had to be home because he had lost a limb. He had lost a, a leg, okay, uh, or a foot. Um, and so, she was trying hard to be you know, grateful that her son was home with her. And she's doing the laundry. She's pulling the socks out, finds once of his socks is missing. And for one split second, she's angry, right? Irritated, socks missing, right? And then that's when it really hits her and she falls down, hit, realizing he'll never need that sock. Well, I had to pull the car over. I was crying so hard. Um, that was a piece of art. And, and previously, I had known the issue of um, explosive devices and civilians or people in, in service who were losing limbs to these explosive devices that had been left behind. I knew that. But my heart hadn't been engaged by that. From that moment on, I'm driving home and I have to pull over because I'm crying so hard. Now I am really thinking about that. And I realized that's what art does. You can, I could tell you all the numbers about people who lose limbs, all of them. And, and you would be, oh my God, oh my God, that's just awful. But until you have one story about one person who did, then it won't be personal. It's as if our heart cannot take this giant loss. But I, you can get in as an artist by talking about one loss. So that's why I did, that's why I specifically chose limb, uh, the leg to be gone because I had been so moved and I feel that creation is a river. So that person's creation moved me, I'm a creator. I'm going to take that and I'm gonna put that back in the river through me. I'm gonna translate that thing. I was very conscious of it. And then again, when you have a, lot, a bunch of characters, different things going on, it's good to have the same thing happen to them all and we see how they react to that. So I'm glad you noticed it. It definitely was a theme. I, want, I wanted to show how it might affect different people and how different people might react to it. I wonder, this is a, a portion of the show that the esteemed audience always looks forward to. Rob reads an author's uh, work to them, but I, I did come across a passage uh, this week rereading Pax that I wanted to, to talk about a little bit. Uh, so the passage is, a human came then with a stick. Both our parents screamed at us to run home. We stayed, we saw, the human raised the stick, and in front of our eyes, our mother and our father burst into blood and fur and shattered bone spattered over the snow. 
Uh, so this is uh, this is the fox bristle. Uh, she's relaying the trauma of losing her her, her parents, uh, and after this trauma, she stays with those bodies for, for over 24 hours. And then after a snowstorm, she discovers her sister has died. This yeah. is an extremely dark passage from a book that while dark is not overwhelmingly dark, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a hopeful story uh, that, 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 that does take us uh, through to the yeah. other side, certainly by the end. But that was a, a very dark section. I wondered where is the line that's where, where you're too dark? We, we said 9 to 12 is the ideal uh, reader age for, for a story like this. Uh, and also, how much of a difference does it make that when we're talking about this, we're talking about foxes as opposed to humans? You caught, you caught that. That's, that's one of the big things. I personally don't have the writing shoulders to do that to a child character. I know that about myself. I don't have that uh, strength. That was, you, I think that's probably the harshest piece in the book. Um, uh, so one thing I did was I gave the things that I could not have done to a child character to the foxes and I gave it off stage. So that does not happen in real time. That's Bristle talking about something that happened I think two years before when she was, when she herself was young two or maybe even three. And yet it's awful. It is still a, a devastating. But when I wrote this book, when I wrote this book, there were, I believe, oh my God, could it be really 60 million refugees in the world? 60 million people driven from their homes from war. And I believe the number was half of them were children. So to me, this is a really serious issue and I'm not going to shy away from how awful things can be. Um, I wanted you to know that this fox and many foxes have a right to be afraid of us. They are right to know that we can commit violence. Um, so I felt I had to do it. You did find that is the worst one. Although emotionally, I think the first chapter when Peter has to give up his fox by betraying him, that's emotionally harder for me. Um, but in this book, I wanted to go as far as I needed to make you aware that animals too suffer from the things that we do. Animals too suffer when when humans are violent. One more uh, question. This is the mask about uh, brighter brighter happier things, uh, but without without spoiling in Pax Journey Home. Uh, yes. Spoiler, I guess. Pax makes it to the second book. Um, <laughs> when, when we open, uh, Pax. The cover is a spoiler, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he's on the cover. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a happy spoiler. Uh, for anybody that's yeah. gonna hack one, they're like, okay, well, there's no chance that that that, that our beloved fox is gonna die until at least the second book. <laughs> I can I can count on that. So uh, chapter one, he's he's out, he's hunting, and he he's come across, I believe it's a uh, warren of 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 dead rabbits. And uh, there's 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 uh, children, uh, young young rabbits, baby rabbits there, and then he's also come across some yeah. uh, baby uh, chipmunks, which of course is I assume thematically important since as the cover spoils, uh, fox is going or, or fox 
Pax. Pax is going to be looking at or is going to be experiencing uh, fatherhood uh, soon and very soon. Um, but that was uh, a dark image to hit us with. Oh, look, our friend Pax is back. Here we go. It's time to get back into the swing of things. And this is, it seems like it's almost you're setting the, the tone or the, the tone for the reader that this is going to be a book that talks about nature seriously, I assume is the reason you do that. What, what other reasons um, um, are opening with that? Uh, it is a hint. It's a foreshadowing. And you can skip it at this time. You could just say, oh, Pax, he maybe he ran into it, a warren of dead animals. But, oh, my gosh, he's so excited. And he's going to go home and find out he's going to you know, have kids. You can skip that one, but there are going to be a few more of them. And after, at some point, I think it's clear that I'm foreshadowing a grave danger to the young. Once more, my job is taking the side of children. That's my job. Um, I feel, as an aside, that, that something big happened to me about 15 years ago. I don't know, I was starting the Clementine series and this happened to me. I overheard a quote uh, that just changed my life and it made me realize, long story short, made me realize my job is not to write books for children in the sense that here you go, here's a present, you, it's destined to go to you. My job is to write books for children in the sense that they can't tell their own stories, but I can do it. So go do it for them instead of them in their stead. Um, so because of that, and I take that really seriously, um, I'm taking a stand here and I'm saying, think about the things that, that we do that affect children. And one of them is wrecking the water. So I had that in the first book, the, the war is about water and I couldn't change that. So now I know, okay, the war is about water. And too often when we want something in war, when we're warring over something, we end up destroying it. We want a city, we bomb it, you know. Uh, not we, not us, but humans tend to. So, so I figured that, okay, a lot of this water now is going to be wrecked because of war. It's going to be tainted. It's going to not be potable anymore. And of course, we all know what happened, what's been happening to kids in Flint. Um, children, especially when they're, they get water that's not pure, that's contaminated, their nervous systems are just starting to develop and they're affected more. So this is me taking a stand for those kids in Flint and for kids everywhere who don't have clean water. So you will find that, yes, that is the big threat in this book to the animals is the water isn't clean. The water isn't safe anymore. And once again, kids and animals weren't asked, hey, should we go to war? You want, are you okay with that? Because they would have said no. All the kids I know um, would have said no. So yeah, that's what's going on. I'm planting that. Um, on the other hand, also Peter's whole journey is with people who are healing that. He joins up with the water warriors. So that's um, balanced out. So we say, yeah, maybe humans have, have done something pretty awful with, with a natural resource that we all need. Same time, we can fix it. We can, we can make sure that that water's clean again. We can put that same kind of energy and um, organization behind a project that 
fixes what the other one wrecked. So yeah, it's, it is dark. These are the darkest books I've ever written, but I really think that it's important that someone takes the stand for kids and animals that says simply, let's think about the cost of this. Whatever it is you're gonna do, I wanna know the cost of it. I don't care, don't tell me how much war costs and money um, or how many troops are gonna be sent over. I wanna know everything. Tell me how much water is going to be ruined. Tell me how many animals will be displaced. Tell me how many will lose limbs. Tell me, we gotta know this before we make a decision or even are part of a, a country and a government that makes that decision. We should know more than we know, more than we're told. Anyway, I hope that's what comes out of this book. I hope, you know, 20, 30 years later, kids have read PACS and they're in a position to vote at the very least um, that, that that's what they think of is what would this war cost? What would it really cost? What would it cost to kids who are displaced? What, what does it cost to refugees? What does it cost to the earth? What cost to animals? We just should ask those questions and just go blindly in and say, oh, that's a you know, $12 trillion war. That's not enough. It was $12 trillion. That doesn't mean anything to me. Tell me about who got their leg blown off and, and then now they're having issues with socks. Now it means something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've personalized it. And um, I hope that, yeah, you, it sounds like you feel the way I do. I, I feel it's a really hopeful, positive book. Yes, stuff goes on. And, and by the way, since 9-11, Something has been different in the world as I see it. And that is that before that, we seem to be able to, to protect kids from knowing some of the bad stuff that goes on in the world. And I was out as a, I was an author then when that happened. And I used to ask kids, what are you worried about? Because I was writing a book about the boy who worried about things. And so I would say, what are you worried about? You can write it down anonymously if there's something you want to talk about. And they were a whole, they were things that you would expect. I'm worried about, you know, my parents might have to move or, or you know, I, someone's going to make fun of me, that kind of stuff. After 9-11, I started getting pictures of airplanes hitting buildings and just awful things happening. And I realized, oh, the contract, the social contract between adults and children has changed and we're not going to be able to go back. So kids know about war in a way that, that uh, 20 years ago they might not have known about at, at five, six, seven, or when they're too young to, to, really, um, to really put it in its perspective. We can't do that anymore. There's just too many screens around. So I think that our job as writers then changes to say, okay, bad stuff does happen. Here's what you can do about it. Here's how you can make sense of it. Here's how you can be part of, of, of responding to it well. You know, that's how I feel anyway. That now, yep, this stuff, this stuff happens. Bad water, um, war harms children and animals. What can we do about it is the important question now. Close sort of a silly notion that if we were just to leave all darkness out of children's literature, children wouldn't still have to grow up in this world. <laughs> they're they're going to encounter some darkness. 
Yeah. And hopefully it's clear when I ask these questions in no way is it ever a criticism. I am a deep admirer of you and these books. And I just want to know how did you did what you did so I can do what I do better. <laughs> um, yeah, these things were really hard for me. And I guess in the beginning, I thought I was being lazy by giving it to the foxes, to the worst things to the foxes, or, or I was like, taking the easy way out. But I'm not sure that's true anymore. It was hard to do it to the foxes, the, the harm that has had to come. Um, and boy, it's hard for my readers too. My readers really care. Some of them are really, really connected to animals. And one thing they taught me, which I hadn't really thought about, was how upsetting it is as, uh, to, as someone who loves an animal, how upsetting it is to not be able to explain things. You know, I hadn't really thought that through. or hadn't really seen that that was a, a very, very hard thing. It's uh, when, Pax, when Peter has to release Pax, the ache there for, for some readers is, but he, he couldn't tell them why. He couldn't say, I'm so sorry, I don't mean this, or I'll come back for you. So they've had those experiences with animals where we really don't share the same language, so we can't talk to them. Um, I think that's why, in fact, I let you feel uh, during the book, which I do feel, is that they know, you know, in the, in, uh, there's a scene in Pac's journey home where we understand that Pax does know and forgive Peter. And Peter knows that he's forgiven for what he did in book one. Now, I believe that, but I also think it's really important to say it. I've got a spoilery question, so I think I'll maybe ask it off air. <laughs> but uh, so Peter does something or, or has a thought in chapter two that uh, just, uh, shocked me in, in Pax a Journey Home. Like, Peter, no, I spent a whole book with you. And now you would think this this dastardly thought, but you know what, I'll tease that out. And okay. esteemed, esteemed audience will find that on their own. I did want to ask, uh, you have said that you uh, started thinking about Pax Journey Home because you were getting so many uh, letters and feedback from readers asking you what happens to the characters after the fact. Tell yeah. us more. So how how did you, had, did you had did you thought there was going to be a second book when you wrote the first one or when did it occur to you that oh no there's a whole another story here and i need to i need to keep this going no i was sure that there wouldn't be in fact i left the 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 ending to pax leaves room for something to happen in the next few days after the book ends and the reader is allowed to fill in what might happen in the next few hours or the next few days and I wanted that on purpose because I thought, okay, this is a tough book to get through. My reader deserves to have what happens after the end of the book be allowed. So I made room for that. You know what I mean, right? It, you know how the book ends and that you could, a couple of different things could have happened after my ending that would be legitimate. Okay, so that's how I left it on purpose. And I knew there was not going to be a sequel. And I was ready for all of these these readers to say, but what happens afterwards? What happens afterwards? Well, one day I got a phone call from my agent and he had gotten one letter. Somehow a letter ended up with him. And he said, oh my gosh, this reader really wants to know. And I laughed and I said, no, Stephen, they all want to know. All of my letters say, but I want to tell you what I think happens afterwards. 
And I just happened to say what I just said to you, which is, you know, I, I did that on purpose and that's the way I want it. And then I said to him, but of course I know what happens. And he said, Oh really? What, what, what happens? And I started talking and I started saying this and that. And I'm reading as I'm going along, I heard myself describing an entire story. I, everything I, I just knew. It's how I did it so that I could leave the book. I made up what they did afterwards, right? And he was quiet. And I knew then when I hung up, I said, I'll bet he's going to call my editor and he's going to tell her this. And sure enough, a couple of days later, he said, okay, I don't know if I was supposed to do this or not, but I told your editor and she would like a phone call. So that's how it happened is they said, you have written a whole other book. Could you please just put it down on paper? And, <laughs> and I did because I, I realized I really wanted to be a fox again. I loved that. I loved imagining this world. And, this, and it's a very beautiful world. They're out in nature all the time. I wanted to do that again. That's the only reason I said, okay, and I did it. It really surprised me, though. I never planned to do it. I'm so glad because PAX is about what happens during war, right? And those are hard things. PAX Journey Home is what happens afterward and all the hopeful, really good things that you can do afterward. Well, I'm looking uh, at our time and I, I see it's uh, uh, flown by. Uh, so I've, I've got about... Uh, Three more questions for you. Do we have time for that? Is that I do, sure. I can't not ask you about A Shark's Tale because I'm just so delighted that you've written a, a movie novelization in addition to your many other projects. And so I'm just curious, when yeah. you look back at that, how is that similar to your process on other books that are wholly original starting from scratch? And how is that uh, different? It was 100% different. I am still not sure how I got that gig. But it came to me, and at the time, I thought, I'm going to learn a lot. And in fact, I did learn a lot. I was, you know, I got to see the, the film before anyone else did. And I learned a lot about how to, what, what should I say? Well, novelization means you take all this dialogue and scenery, that's what you have in a film, and I filled in narrative, right? So at that stage in my career, I only had one or two books. It was, it was actually a really good learning experience. But oh my gosh, it was hard and it had to be so fast and it was so secretive. There were all these big, you know, secret disclosure forms I had to sign and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, learned, how to, uh, I learned how to pull narrative out of dialogue and scenery. It was good. I wouldn't do it again. It's not, not that interesting, but it was then. Even if there was any movie in the world, you could, you could be guaranteed you'll write the novelization for any, any movie you pick? No, I learned a little bit from that one, but I also learned from the Flat Stanley series. You know, I did some of those. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. um, I wrote some Flat Stanleys. That's when I really learned you have to create your own characters for, for me anyway to have the juice to get through an entire book, that has to be a character I have created. I just, I don't wanna do it again for anything I didn't create. It's a, you know, you know what a, what a slog a novel is. 
it's it's a lot of work. There's, you know, it's a big, big project. And I know that I need two things for me to carry it off. One of them is a character I've created that I would take a bullet for. And another one is some something going on in the background, something thematic that I care so much about that I will, you know, go through the tortures of making the best book I can. And that's just not true when you're you got someone else's ideas, someone else's story, someone else's character. So it was an honor to do the Flat Stanleys that I did. I learned things, but I never want to do that again. Well, now I have to sneak in a quick follow-up. Uh, mm-hmm. When you say you need to have, you have a theme in mind, do you have a theme in mind when you start the first draft or does it emerge as you're writing? Uh, what I have is an injustice. Believe it or not, even the funniest of the books that I have are about an injustice. I mean, uh, the Clementine books, they're about the injustice of so many kids who are told you're not paying attention when they are paying attention. I had, I had a son who was told all the time, you're not paying attention, you're not paying attention. And sometimes I was the one saying it before I, you know, clued in that he was paying attention, just not to what I wanted him to pay attention to. So there has to be a sense of injustice. I have to be like, this is just not fair. And that's true of every book. And that's certainly true of PACs. It's not fair. Kids are asked to pay the price of wars that they don't get to choose. So that's the injustice. Um, But as far as theme, I don't actually see it until it reveals itself to me at least halfway through the book. So there's an injustice I'm dealing with that gets me all riled up. You know, I need to have some some kind of passion to get into this story. And how am I going to convey this? Now I'm going to represent that, that little injustice by scene after scene after scene. That's of interest to me. That, as an author, that, that intrigues me. Um, but I don't really see the themes until the end, until I read it myself and I'm saying, oh, look at that. I mentioned home again. Oh, look at that, how I've done that. And then I can go through um, injustice is not a theme. It's just what gets me going. You know, something's wrong in the world that gets me going, but it's not the theme. The theme comes later. Oh, lots of follow-up questions to that, but no, I'm going to be good. I promise three. <laughs> I'm going to ask two more. Uh, I have a question the esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody. Uh, Sarah Pennypacker, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No, I'm sorry. They have, they have not shown themselves to me. I am 100% open. I don't close stuff down. But for some reason, I have not been deemed worthy to see either of those things. I'd welcome it. My, my final question is always some variation of, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, whenever it would have made a difference and give yourself some advice that would have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everyone listening to us right now, what would you go back and tell yourself? I will tell you what I came to understand is the best piece of writing advice. I'm going to go get it for you. Hold on. A story is the boss. I waste 
a little bit now, but boy, in the beginning, I wasted so much time thinking, well, the rule of story is you always have to do this or stories, you know, only have one character, whatever, whatever rule I thought there was. And this answers everything, everything. This is like a Zen cone in that it's, it seems really simple, but the more you study it, the more you understand that it answers everything. So that's what I would say. I spent, I spent in the early days too much time trying to follow story rules that I thought, oh, all stories, you know, I can't even tell you how many there are that you'll hear. But in fact, if you give it up to the story and understand that your job is to serve this story and tell it the way it wants to be told, that's how you get your best book and stop trying to make it fit into any kind of mold. I'm better at that now. So yeah, I'm going to save you guys some time. Whatever's going on in your book that you can't figure out or you're trying, you're struggling with, the story is the boss. Can you read that? Right, it's not backwards. Nope, oh, it's uh, absolutely perfect. Although I'm I'm reminded uh, forcibly of of Bola and uh, <laughs> her, her messages that are that are written around the the house to to. Who? Who? Of um, oh my God, the uh, oh, Bola, Bola, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, you you did, yeah, yeah. No, I just didn't hear you. Um, I'm forever mispronouncing character names. You're getting them wrong. It's something I, I live in fear of doing this show. It's one reason I don't summarize other people's books. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, you're, you're good. But um, no, in fact, we're not. There's another rule. This is another rule. And I had to break it for, for the adult books. And never have a character, a main character, whose name could be pronounced two different ways. Because then booksellers won't want to talk about your book because they'll be afraid they're saying it wrong. So... Uh, did you not know that rule? That's a great rule. <laughs> it's not. The story is the boss. What does <laughs> your story want? <laughs> it's actually a pretty smart rule. As I, I mean, it's, it's pretty smart. Um, pretty anyway. good rule. If you have the opportunity to include a description like the librarian looked like a tossed handful of jewels, bright coral scarf, gold silk blouse, sapphire blue uh, skirt, there, there are worse descriptions you could write for all of the librarians who might be uh, reading your book and, and then <laughs> passing it on to you. Hey, that's a real woman. Her name's B. Booker. I didn't even make her up. So, oh, yeah. Isn't oh, that a joy? Isn't that a joy that you do in your book? Do you sneak little real things in, which are nods to real people? I love doing that. My cat was Polka Dottie. Polka Dottie is just this remarkable cat that makes that shows up in Clementine in Backstory. And that was my cat. And I felt, ah, it was so fun to just honor her that way. So yeah, B. Booker. She, and she dressed just like that. She looked like a handful of jewels. She was beautiful. Sarah Pennypacket, this has been just a delight. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? SarahPennypacker.com. Wait, is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's all I have. Um, I do believe, I do not have a Facebook page, but I am now attempting to tweet a little bit. I'm not really great at it, but 
that's it. But the website is sarahpennypacker.com. Come on over. Hi, and as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for the back catalog of the show, interviews with all the best agents, all the best authors, all the best people, everything that's good in this world, middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Manica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get your copy of Pax Journey Home, available September 7th, either for pre-order or depending on when you're listening to this, you can get it right now. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 